Hello and welcome to Rebel Justice. I am Simon Natus. I am one of the founding partners of ITN Solicitors in London. I specialise in criminal defence work and also in protest law. I have uh, about 25 years of experience working in criminal justice and that includes a lot of work in the Court of Appeal, which I think we'll be talking about today, including the Supreme Court case of Jogi, which changed the law on secondary participation. Um, I am here with Jeremy Dean KC, who is one of the country's leading criminal silks. He was called to the bar in 1982. He took silk in 2003, uh, became a recorder in 2004, and has sat at the Old Bailey since 2016. Um, He's the head of 25 Bedford Row, which is one of the UK's largest criminal defence chambers. Um, He has uh, appeared in countless um, high-profile criminal trials and appeals, and has also uh, done a lot of media work, um, television work, which I'm sure he will talk about uh, a little bit later. So, Jeremy, I wonder if you could just tell us about how you got into law. Where did you start and how did you end up where you got to? Well, Simon, first of all, thank you very much for that introduction. If I could just correct one thing, I've, I've stood down as head of chambers in January after seven great years in the set that, you know, I started in. But of course, I'm still a very proud member of 25 Bedford Row. Um, the answer to your question, Simon, is that I came from what can properly be described as a very working class background. My dad was a waiter in a, an East London restaurant. I was born in East London. I'm a proud Cockney. And... I wasn't very good at many things at school, quite honestly, but one thing that I did seem to have an acumen for was public speaking, even though I had a quite a thick Cockney accent in those days. And being brought up in the environment that I was, I, I had a, an overwhelming desire to be a criminal defence advocate, to speak for what I regarded as working class people. And I was very fortunate that my dad knew a number of barristers through the restaurant who came for lunch in the restaurant because it was in the city of London. And he got me my pupillage. In those days, that's how it happened. And the rest, as they say, is history. I mean, I'm always quite interested in in what people kind of saw themselves doing when they decided to become lawyers and whether they actually feel like they've achieved those ambitions or, or perhaps more accurately, whether they actually feel that the job that they're doing really is the one that they always felt they wanted to do. Are, they, are, you, are you actually achieving the things, for example, for working class people, for underprivileged people that you thought you would be able to achieve in your job? I mean, I think the answer to your question, Simon, I haven't actually thought about that excellent question before, but I can actually readily give an answer to it. And the answer is yes. Reflecting upon what you've asked me, which is, you know, trying to remember as clearly as I can the reasons why I wanted to be a criminal lawyer, I do feel overwhelmingly that the objectives that I sought to meet have been met. I mean, obviously not everyone that I have represented or represent, like you, I'm sure, can properly be described as from the working classes. But having essentially been a legal aid lawyer for most of my career, not all of it by any means, you know, I do feel that I've spent much of my career representing the interests, if not strictly of working class people, certainly of people who are less fortunate in life, whether it be financially, socially, intellectually, mentally. I do. I feel that I've served the purpose of speaking on behalf of people who have been less lucky in life. Yes. 
I mean, clearly, in the short term, as a criminal lawyer, you help people because you help them through a particular moment of crisis in their lives and hopefully come out the other end with um, maybe the best result that was realistically on offer. But do you actually feel that as criminal lawyers, we can sometimes go a bit further than that? Do you think that perhaps the work that we do um, allows us to help people in more fundamental ways? Or is it, are we just firefighting for them? Do you ever feel that you've actually changed people's lives for the better? I think firefighting is a very good way of putting it. I mean, I think very often we are firefighting. But I also think that we do change people's lives for the better. Yes, I think that sometimes when we achieve positive results in cases, which, you know, facilitate a second chance, you know, that's changing people's lives for the better. Um, Sometimes when we secure community penalties, which, you know, afford people opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't have had, that's changing people's lives for the better. And to be honest, when I've represented young defendants in gang crime cases, which I've done a lot of, I think we change their lives for the better as well, because I think very often the criminal lawyers who represent young kids who are charged with gang crime, we are the first people, actually, or some of the first people they've met who they can actually trust. And I think sometimes they come out of their experience having gained at least some confidence in the proposition that other human beings actually care about them. So I think there are a number of ways in which potentially we do and can change people's lives for the better. Yeah, I agree with that. Quite often it it can be quite intangible that you recognise after having that sort of relationship with someone that uh, having gained their trust, you feel that there is something that has changed. And sometimes it's more obvious than that. I I remember actually one of the first clients I represented after we set up firm, it was an absolutely hopeless heroin addict and I dealt with a whole series of cases for him. And then years later, he turned up at my office and and came in and I said, well, um, how can I help you? What's happened now? Expecting him to tell me that he'd been arrested again. Um, And he said, no, I've just popped in to say hello. I just Mm. wanted to tell you that I moved out of London, I'm off heroin, I'm working. Um, That was a great feeling. I mean, it it would be great if it happened a bit more often than it does, but when it it does... Sorry to speak over you. That's a really nice story. If I could just give the most extreme example, this is a true story. It's very short, but, you know, I think it encapsulates my response to the question you asked me and what you've just said. I I actually was involved in a double murder trial about 15 years ago at the Old Bailey, which was a street fight in Tooting, where I represented a really nice guy. And all of them got convicted of double murder, but the convictions were quashed for reasons I, I won't go into. And there was no retrial ordered. Um, because it was all to do with tainted evidence. I saw him about two years later at the Old Bailey coming out of the public gallery. And I met him in the street and I said, like, like what are you doing here? And I, you know, I had a suspicion that he was back watching one of his mates. Or He said, oh, it's, yeah. I'm about to start a training contract as a solicitor. So he'd been convicted of double murder. His convictions were quashed. Yes. And, and he said, what I learned from that experience is I want to be a lawyer. And he's now a yeah. criminal solicitor. That is an amazing story. That is extraordinary. So you've had a very long career and um, and you were you were called to the bar when I was, I think, just starting secondary school. And, um, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I feel like I've been around for a while. But, um, and I've seen quite a lot of changes in the system uh, during the, just during the years that I've been um, a, a defence solicitor. Um, how do you think the criminal justice system has changed since you became uh, became a, a, a barrister, and do you think it's changed for the better or for the worse? I mean, to answer the last part of your question, Simon, I, I think it's definitely changed for the better. That's not to say it's perfect by any okay. means. Mm. 
I mean, what I would say is that when I when I came to the bar in the 1980s, early 1980s, the the professions, especially the bar, were incredibly upper class, racist, sexist, and exclusionary. Ooh. The judiciary was even worse. Judges were universally biased and partisan. The summing up of judges was shockingly one-sided. You know, prejudice and bias towards the police was just, you know, out of all possible perspective. Police were, were completely corrupt and got away with anything. So, you know, I think it was a pretty damaged system. And the worst thing about it of all was that the people in it thought it was a great system. The worst offenders were the ones that reached the top and, yeah. you know, reveled. In it. And I think they were completely oblivious to how corrupt the system was. It has changed. It's much, much more multiracial now. It's got a long way to go. Judiciary is more liberal. It is, on the whole, much fairer. Summing up of judges is, on the whole, far more balanced. And I think the system is, is more transparent than it was before. So I think it has improved. But, you know, there are still significant problems, of course. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that analysis uh, from the perspective of a solicitor, certainly. Uh, I mean, when I, well, in fact, a few years before I qualified, because I started working as a police station rep about four years before I, I actually qualified as a solicitor. So I think first police station I went to was in 1994. And it was, even then, was a bit like life on Mars, if uh, our listeners remember the BBC <laughs> officers were still aggressive they swore yeah. at you as a as an offence lawyer and one of the first interviews i did i'd advise my client to make no comment and uh there was a very small chair in the corner of the room it was like a chair from a nursery school and the officer told me to go and sit in the corner on this little chair because <laughs> <laughs> i was advising my client to make no comment yeah. which, which i refused it. to do which i refused to do but i mean that sort of thing used to go on a lot and um, and that's after solicitors got into the police station. Of course, when you first started, it was quite usual yeah. for people to be interviewed without them at all. Yeah. Um, but that that sort of thing is absolutely unthinkable now. So it's definitely improved to that extent. I wonder what your view is, though, about some of the some of the changes to the criminal law that uh, perhaps were intended to uh, and probably have loaded the dice a little bit more towards the prosecution. So I'm thinking about the changes to the law on bad character and possibly yeah. changes to, to the hearsay laws. How do you think they've affected the criminal justice system? I think that, that, as you say, you know, the law did change radically in 2003 and opened the door to much more bad character evidence and hearsay evidence coming in. I'm going to be honest with you, Simon. I think that there was a strong argument in favour of the law being updated, I could see for quite some time that it was coming. There were going to be changes, that there were cases in which the concealment of previous convictions, which were prime effect, you know, on the face of it relevant, wasn't going to last forever, and possibly even hearsay. So I wasn't surprised that those changes came. And I was, in fact, involved very heavily with the CBA, the Criminal Bar Association, on character evidence mm. when 2003 Act came into force. And in fact, the criminal professions managed to, to water down the proposed changes very significantly. In practical terms, I have to say this, and it's my genuine view, and I don't know whether you share it. I find that judges, the modern day judiciary on the whole, is largely cautious about letting in historic bad character. It doesn't follow as night follows day by any means. They tend to let in hearsay more. I also feel that juries do give 
limited weight to bad character evidence. I don't, my experience is not that the mere admission of bad character evidence tends to lead to conviction. Um, I think hearsay evidence can be more damaging. So in the round, you know, I understand why those changes were made. They do make our lives more difficult on occasions. But I don't think it follows automatically that a defendant will be found guilty if one or both of those heads of evidence is admitted. That's, I think, broadly been my experience. Uh, I suppose the cases that worry me the most are, are joint enterprise murder cases where knowledge of possession of a knife is really a crucial issue in the case. So you, you'll, get, you'll get one defendant who's the principal, who's, the, who's everybody agrees normally is the stabber. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But, but then you'll get secondary parties who are said to have assisted or encouraged, and, and their case usually, as I'm sure you, <laughs> you've experienced, Jeremy, is uh, I had no idea that the yeah. uh, principal had a knife. I had no idea who was going to use it. And then they may have a, a conviction for possession yeah. of a knife. And, and I do find that when those convictions go in, they can be really, really damaging. Um, yeah. uh, those are the sorts of, I think those are the sorts of bad character cases that I think worry me the most because it yeah. just doesn't follow that just because a kid's been arrested with a knife on one particular occasion, even more often that they would necessarily know that their friend had one. I think that's, a, you know, is a very concerning aspect. Yes, but you have a real speciality in joint enterprise. I think that is one of the features of joint enterprise allegations that is worrying, but there are plenty more, aren't there? You know, this whole business of yeah. young people, especially being swept up on a joint enterprise basis. People are absolutely right. You know, when, when a secondary party has a conviction of possession of a knife and that conviction goes in, it can significantly increase the prospects of conviction, even where the primary evidence of complicity in, in the homicide is pretty weak. I think that is a matter of great concern. Yes, I do. You're right. Yeah. I, I want to go and talk about the Court of Appeal in, in, a, in a little while, um, yeah. just because it's, it's quite topical and we'll, I think we'll explain why in a minute. But since yeah. we're on the subject of, of joint enterprise, I thought it might be interesting just to ask, ask you some of your views about how you think the Jody case has changed things. I think for our listeners, perhaps who haven't spent so long thinking about joint enterprise as I have, just explain very quickly what the Jogi case was about. So before Jogi, there was a legal doctrine which didn't really have a proper name. Sometimes it was called um, parasitic accessorial liability, which is a bit of a mouthful. But basically what it came down to was if you get involved in, in a crime, which they would call crime A, and sometimes that could be a robbery, sometimes it could be a burglary, but frankly, most often it was just a fight in the street. So an affray or an ABH or something like that. And one of your party um, killed with the requisite intent for murder which is just intention to kill or cause really serious injury, then you would be liable for murder if you assisted or encouraged in crime, crime A and you foresaw that the principal might kill with the requisite intent. It didn't require you to intend him to do it at all. It just required foresight. Uh, and that set the bar really very, very low for, for murder uh, there are an awful lot of people who have probably been convicted of, uh, of joint enterprise murder on that basis historically. And in uh, 2016, the Supreme Court decided that that principle was wrong. Uh, everybody who had been convicted of murder, which 
means a mandatory life sentence should only have been convicted of manslaughter. Uh, unfortunately, it has resulted in the quashing of only one historic murder conviction, but that was was a fairly fundamental change in the law. So now you can only be convicted of murder if you uh, if you intend to assist someone to kill or cause really serious injury. Um, but there's been a lot of debate since Jogi, and it's been six years now, about how much difference it's actually made in practice. And it's quite difficult to discern, really. Um, and I wonder, obviously, having defended in lots of joint enterprise murder cases, both before and after Jogi, how you think that has affected the way you do your job and you think potentially the outcomes. Yeah. I mean, firstly, what I would say is that the old framework that you've sort of clearly identified used to worry me so much. Mm-hmm. You know, this whole concept of foresight of consequences. And I, I was also always concerned with, as to whether the jury really understood the legal directions. And, and if they did, that, as you say, the threshold was so low that the, the capacity for conviction was just so immense. I mean, I do feel more comfortable with what I'll call the new framework, the Joji framework, even though it's mm-hmm. been there since 2016. Um, that is subject to the proposition, Simon, which I'm sure you'd agree with, that I think the whole law of homicide needs to be revolutionised. We need tiers of homicide. This whole business of joint enterprise, quite frankly, is archaic, historic mm-hmm. and illogical, mm-hmm. irrational, unfair and unjust. In terms of verdicts, you said it's hard to discern. I think it is hard to discern. I think it's very fact specific. My instinct is that it's made the prospect of being convicted on a secondary party basis a bit less likely but that's about as far as I can go. I don't know. I sense that you tend to agree with me, really, on that analysis from what you've said. Uh, yes, I, I do. I do agree. I think I think it has made it a bit less likely. And I think there probably are quite a lot of people who would have been convicted of murder, who've been convicted of manslaughter. And I think that's probably what I've noticed most, yeah. uh, is that uh, it's just as much much more common, I've noticed, to get manslaughter convictions rather than murder convictions yeah. in joint enterprise cases. I think cases. that's right. No, I, I'm not sure that all our listeners will necessarily comprehend the enormous difference that there is between a manslaughter conviction and a murder conviction. I mean, the, the length of time that you have to serve if you're convicted yeah. of murder as a joint enterprise, you know, secondary party who may have contributed very little to the eventual outcome. It's a mandatory life sentence. And yeah. if there's a knife involved, it's brought to the scene, as you know, during 25 years yeah. Um, yeah. Is, the, is the tariff. Whereas for manslaughter... I mean, you might get a determinate sentence, maybe 10 years in those circumstances. And I mean, of that now. The case I'm doing at the moment, Sorry, which no. is a joint enterprise murder, you know, the classic sort of street fight that just broke out in a club. My, my client is accepted to have been trying to break the fight up to the very last moment when mm. it's said that he gave one, he administered one kick in respect of a large incident where someone was stabbed. If he's convicted, as you say, he's up for a 25 year minimum term in a, an incident which is acknowledged that he tried to stop but then lost his call the prosecution saying and kicked once and yeah. he'll get 20 to 25 years i mean it's absurd totally absurd it, it, it yeah. is it is absolutely absurd and i don't think you really quite appreciate it until you've had a client who's got a life sentence yeah. and you've gone down into the cells at the bailey and you've got somebody who's just con- has to confront the fact that they for the foreseeable future and beyond and beyond that they're going to be in prison. One of the hardest things for those offenders is that they don't understand, you know, mm-hmm. how and why they are being convicted of murder. They, they just can't yeah. comprehend it. Fine, yeah. someone has died, but I didn't kill them. I, okay, yeah. I, I slapped, you know, the victim around the face or I kicked the victim, but I'm not a murderer. But I'm doing yes. 23 years, you know, with an indeterminate sentence. 
somebody I spoke to about this once observed that um, we've kind of replaced capital punishment with the mandatory life sentence. It was sort of a quid pro quo. This is going back to the 1960s. Uh, it's a quid pro quo that doesn't mean anything now. You know, it's just, you can kind of understand why that compromise was made at the time to get rid of uh, the death penalty. But now, you know, it's just, it, it is just absolutely indefensible. And we kind of think, we're horrified at the idea that the state could kill somebody, even if they've been properly convicted. But, you know, let alone if they may have been wrongly convicted, it's horrifying. And of course, because most people will understand that, uh, there is uh, obviously a lot of opposition to reintroducing the death penalty and hopefully not going to happen. But what we seem to not have such a problem with is just burying people in the prison system and throwing away yeah. the key for periods of time that are just uh, almost unimaginable. hundred uh, percent. And I think there's another angle to this as well, which is that, you know, the reason why the Old Bailey, for example, at the moment is has never been busier and they can't get cases on and people are in custody for two years is because there is no pyramid of offending when you're, you know, swept up under the joint enterprise principle. Everybody can test the case. If if someone who kicked a person who died at the hands of another who stabbed them was told, OK, fine, you're on, you know, tier three homicide with a range of sentence of, let's say, five to ten years a lot of people will plead guilty, but if the stakes are you're going to serve a minimum of 23 years, everybody fights. So yeah. there are multiple trials, you know, more than ever now. So it's complex, very okay, complex. Cool. Well, the, the Law Commission, in fact, did recommend uh, a tripartite um, yeah. structure for homicide back in 2006. So uh, the mandatory life sentence they propose to retain, but only for intent to kill cases and intent to cause GBH cases, which uh, is most murders would be taken out of the ambit of the mandatory life sentence. You could still get one, but normally you wouldn't. And um, and then we would still have manslaughter for cases where there was no intent to cause really serious harm. That was, a, you know, it seemed like a fairly sensible set of reforms, which you would have thought would have been possible. But the, the then government just wasn't interested. The, the Law Commission hasn't gone back there. And that concludes the first part of our two-part discussion between expert criminal defence solicitor Simon Natus and top barrister Jeremy Dean Casey. Join us next time when Simon and Jeremy talk about the Court of Appeals system, its issues, limitations and how the system needs to change to allow appeals to focus on evidence and trial fairness. They also raise the important issue of offenders living in prisons who shouldn't be there at all, people with mental or personality disorders and other serious issues. Rebel Justice Podcast is produced by The View magazine. You can subscribe to The View at theviewmag.org.uk and follow us on our social media. We are Rebel Justice on X, formerly Twitter, and The View magazine on Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook.